This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Book, Why the First Books of the Bible Were Written and Who Were They Written For? And the author is Alan Wright, and Alan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Alan. Yes, I'm here. Great to have you with us. You describe your book as an entertaining, informative, and fresh interpretation of the Bible's first books, Genesis through Second Kings. And of course, we'll get into what uh, is the extent of part one and part two. But before we get into this and this, what you call an eye-opening account because of... Uh, You've discovered who composed the first books of the Bible, and you want to share that in a much different way than most Christians and I'm sure others who study religion would profess that the Bible is all about. So find, let's find out about you first, Alan, and your background and why you did this. Well, uh, you know, my background, well, it began at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where I was a history major and, and with a strong minor in science. And uh, we had, uh, this was back in the early 70s, where we were questioning everything. And, and uh, uh, it was a kind of an anti-establishment sort of attitude. The Vietnam War was unpopular. And we began to steer away from the traditional uh, take on things. Uh, you know, be it the, the institution of even government, church, and this and that all came under question. Uh, you had the Watergate affair and all these things going on, and it was kind of a freedom of thought. And it, it was kind of an interesting time to be young and be in college, and, and it all basically had, it, had, had its roots from that time and from that experience. And uh, I went ahead and lived a, a good professional life. I've had three, you know, basically three separate careers. All were wonderful, and uh, I got to retire early. And uh, I, I took a, a graduate course at SMU in the ancient Near East, and, and it kind of began with that class. I wrote a paper that got published, which appears in part one of my book, and uh, my retirement began, and I had this publication, and I was involved in biblical study. And it was kind of a fun thing to do in my time, in my spare time, and all the extra time that I had. And the idea, all of a sudden, it, it kind of struck me as a flash, and I saw it from beginning to end. It just kind of swept through me, you know, a feeling that rushes through you. And, and I basically sat down and wrote my first draft from beginning to end, which is what you see. Now, I went back over and over two, three times fixing this, but all in all, my first draft isn't much different than the final draft. Well, you take us back in time to put everything in context. That's what is so unique about this. And you say mm -hmm. the first books of the Bible, uh, it is not 
about religion. It's about the Bible. Now, tell us what you mean by that. Right. Right. Okay. What it what it is? It, it, again, being a history guy, uh, uh, usually if, if you take a look at people writing, uh, you know they write something. Somehow, the backdrop of what is going on during the times they are living has an influence on it. Uh, in in this case, uh, you had uh, this. This was about oh, 200 years or so, or 100, 150 years or so after the, um, the 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 loss of the northern tribes of Israel. There, they uh, they rebelled against the authority. The authority won. And what they did was exile the, the leaders, and they left the poor people just to kind of melt away, and that's what they did. Uh, they intermarried and went on and lived other lives, and, and the northern tribes just kind of uh, did exactly that, just kind of melted away into the surrounding cultures. Uh, along comes this, you know, the southern tribes, again, there was a rebellion uh, against Babylon, Again, the rebellion was crushed. Again, they were uh, the leaders were um, exiled to Babylon, and the masses were were left behind to uh, melt away. And this time, the people in Babylon wanted to, with that history, knowing the history of what happened to the northern tribes, wanted to take steps to prevent that from happening. They wanted to save their people. They wanted to hold on to their people. They wanted to hold on to their culture, hold on to their language. And they wrote Genesis through Kings 2. That was what they did. And I went about chapter through chapter through chapter uh, firming that uh, assumption up. And I, as I said, believe I, I make a, a good case for it. Uh, again, it's, it is, it's a secular interpretation uh, that's my background. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to invent anything or come out against this or that. It's just, you know, this is where my research led me. You talk uh, about, according to the legend, 70 wise and learned Hebrew scribes. They traveled to Egypt uh, after Greek-speaking Jews living in Egypt convinced an Egyptian leader to include the books of Moses in his library. Now that, oh, yeah, you know, okay, we, yes. We haven't, we yeah, haven't okay. heard about that before. Yeah, well, that that's you know, that that was something that uh, you, you read about in history at the universities, and that there, that there was this legend. You know, it it basically uh, stated that uh, they they wrote this translation, and and as as the as the book explains, uh, these learned men were put in separate rooms. Each of them read it, and it all came back the same. So, in other words, they're saying that that the uh, that the writing is authentic and something that you can accept as well. Let's call it gospel. How's that? Because there are very few documents in Hebrew, original documents in Hebrew. Just a few scraps. Just a few scraps. But that Greek translation uh, is is what survived, and uh, and there's that legend behind it. I, I mean, people, biblical scholars, biblical people who who you know, love and enjoy the Bible, uh, appreciate that, and, um, and the fact that the work survived, and they give due credit to the Greek translation. And therefore, there has to be something magical about that for such a magical event to have occurred. You know, I, you had uh, the, these ancient Hebrew scripts that just disappeared, and you know, they, they were written on scrolls, and, 
and uh, uh, the fact that this survived is is uh, is a worthy note, and therefore the legend. In part one, you compare two of the Bible's most familiar tales. Of course, we all know about Noah and the ark and the flood, and then we all know the great story of uh, the uh, little boy David uh, killing Goliath. Now, but Uh you take some earlier ancient texts uh, to to give us uh, just to compare these. Uh, now, tell us about that part one. Okay, good, good question. Interesting question, too. Uh, there was an ancient text that survived. It was discovered in the 1860s in an archaeological dig. Uh, they discovered this text pretty much in full. There's some missing parts to it, but for the most part, we had the whole book, and it was titled The Epic of Gilgamesh. It was written in cuneiform. Uh, which is a script that uh, the Hebrew script derived from all the other alphabets came from. It was the first, uh, cuneiform was the first alphabet, so to speak. And um, uh, in, in the, the, the cuneiform, uh, in cuneiform language was the, uh, the um, explanation, or it basically was the Epic of Gilgamesh, the flood, the great flood that occurred in ancient Mesopotamia. And in that case, they built an ark, they did this, they did that. And if you read that alongside the Noah story, you will see the Noah story took, well, let's just say liberally, very liberally from that text, in some cases word for word. And uh, so the, the, the Noah, what they did do is change the, the cause of the flood. Uh, the Mesopotamian uh, people said that the people were making too much noise and the gods couldn't sleep. Now, if you ever tried to take a nap in, uh, in Manhattan, New York, you will understand that. It's hard to sleep in Manhattan, especially if you're in a cheap hotel. And uh, so you can, I cannot understand where they're coming from there. But in this case, they changed the cause of the flood. Instead of disturbing the gods' sleep, uh, the, the flood was brought forth because of the wickedness of the people. And God was angry with their wickedness. Mm-hmm. Wickedness meaning they just were kind of every man for themselves, uh, not very religious, not in tune with God and in and, and this. And, and basically that's the, the point behind that. Did I explain that well enough? Yes. And then the shepherd boy David. Anything there? That... Yeah, the shepherd boy David. Now there's another connection. Uh, you, there's a lot about the David story. But one part that we always remember, even as a kid, was the epic uh, single combat duel between David and Goliath. Okay, that's 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 a favorite for all of us. And uh, a little boy with the Lord in his heart can take on a giant. Um, that story, uh, there was a very similar story between a single combat duel between uh, Gilgamesh and a Humbamba, this big, monstrous uh, opponent. And there, too, was the, uh, you know, the, the fight that is similar in very many ways, as I, as I laid out in my book, you know, both the, in translation, both the words that were spoken in that uh, translation and in, the, and in the Hebrew translation involving David and Goliath. You could see very similar parallels between the uh, single combat duel between David and Goliath and the single combat duel between uh, Gilgamesh and Hamaba. Uh, very similar 
very similar things there. And in some cases, both uh, each, uh, both the giant and the uh, and the uh, human uh, said pretty much the same things in slightly different ways. Um, so there, there was a clear, there's a clear parallel there between uh, the two texts. And I wrote a paper on that, and that was my first paper to be published was that comparison. And that was uh, published in uh, the Journal of Biblical Literature, and and uh, I did that while I was still in Dallas, and then I came up here and did my book. Part two of your book, where you analyze each book from Genesis to Second Kings. Now you you put it in historical back in a historical right. context, and and that is what's so important about this. Yeah, I I think that's the that's the key thing is to is to read these books and figure out what is going on while these books were being written what caused them to write these books did they just sit down and come up with this idea hey let's just write this or did something prompt them to do it and i argue that yes they were prompted to do it uh, due to the circumstances that was facing the people, uh, there was a huge setback for the Jewish people, and they basically set out to prevent another lost tribes of Israel scenario, and uh, they wanted to hold these people together during their exile, and uh, and they pretty much succeeded. Well, they did succeed. Although there is, there is, you know, a few other little considerations. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and and uh, ended the exile and this and that. But um, uh, you know, but pretty much uh, the Bible has kept the Jewish people together ever since. And it's held in the highest esteem by Christians all over the world. So, no kidding. Yes, 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 yes. But both, but both. Uh, uh, Christianity is, is 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 an extension of Judaism, in in in, in many respects. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, there there was just this slight uh, difference with the Christ figure, Jesus, which some of the more Orthodox Jews didn't really buy into. And then, uh, even though they tried to work with one another, and, and you know there were a lot of uh, interlaps between the two, but they just basically broke. Uh, they just kind of kind of broke and went their own way. Of course, the fall of Rome had a lot to do do with that, and uh, the subsequent uh, chaos that resulted from that. But um, uh, it, uh, you know, it, you know that's that's the way I I, I see that. Um, but they, they, it's it's uh, both both books are are just remarkable in their own way. Um, I studied the Old Testament. I I'm, was born Lutheran, and I was born in the Christian tradition. But uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to that Old Testament a little bit more than I am the New Testament. Well, you're providing a new lens for us, a new paradigm. The author, Alan Wright, in his book titled The Book, Why the First Books of the Bible Were Written and Who Were They Written For. Alan, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's on, uh, it's, it's definitely on Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon.com under that name. Uh, you can contact iUniverse. Um, you can contact me 
and uh, but eventually uh, we have uh, uh, there's some agents that are looking into it, and it could become uh, a book that you will find in all the bookstores in the not too distant future. Of course, you could get a, a digital copy. I'm an old I'm an older guy. I like books. I have a hard time reading a digital copy, but the younger generation is a lot more used to it. Uh, I like having my book at hand and carrying that with me, but. Uh, but it's in both print and digital. Thank you so much, Alan, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Oh, well, thank you, and I enjoyed it. Those were great questions you asked. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana, through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage, connectwithjulianainmedia.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune into Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse Publications. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today on iUniverse, we'll be discussing a book titled Leaving Liberty, Essays on Politics and Free Market Thinking. The author, Martin Mazzora. Welcome, Marty. Welcome. Hi there. Good to, be, good to visit with you. Yes, uh, you're, you're welcome yourself. That's good. Yeah, exactly. How did you come to write this book? What's your background? Tell me a little bit about your history. Jay, I am an uh, investment consultant. I've been one for 29 years. And uh, obviously in that business, I, I spend a, a noticeable amount of time uh, paying attention to the economy, economic events globally. I have to consider... What, what impacts of, of certain events and trends might have on the equity and fixed income markets. And uh, therefore, I, I've become quite the student of uh, global economics and economic history. And over the years, 
as my understanding uh, has evolved, I've become quite concerned with the impact that the political process has on the on the economy and on the financial markets. And I started writing about that a few years ago. And uh, I blog daily um, and on articles that have to do with financial markets, but probably uh, a third to a half of those are, are specifically about politics and economics, and hence the uh, the book you hold in your hand um, was was the result of me wanting to um, distill some some concepts, some ideas that I that I that I would like everyday people to begin thinking about and hopefully understanding in a, in a very inviting, uh, very accessible format. And, and uh, as, you, as you notice there, it's a daily devotional. And, and again, it's, it's something I want uh, people who would normally not perhaps uh, be attracted to a book about politics and economics to pick up, enjoy, and read, and hopefully get something out of. Well, you've quoted James Buchanan, who is an economist, and he said this, when I look at the future, I get nervous, but when I look to the past... I feel pretty good. Uh, that appears to be your philosophy as well. I think so. Yeah, I, in the book, I, I start optimistically and I finish optimistically. And, and in between, um, you know, I complain a lot about um, the, again, politics and economics. And, and you know, I hope that, that, that through this sort of um, style of, of explaining what, what really what I believe is going on under the surface Will will create some some um, transparency for people and, and begin understanding that, that that as the media tends to present things isn't necessarily what's what's really transpiring under the surface and the consequences that you might expect sometime are, are exactly the opposite of what history has proven to us time and again. But when you look back um, and you think about the events of the past, that that article or that essay that you're referencing. I, I talk about the good old days, and of course I, I, I say the Great Depression and World War II and Korea and, and assassinations of presidents and that sort of thing. And, and we, we get so nostalgic, but when we look back, there, uh, I don't know that there was a time when we weren't frightened about something. So you look to the future, you get nervous, you see the European debt crisis, you see, uh, you, know, the, you feel the effect of the tech bubble a few years ago, and then the real estate bubble, and, and deep recessions deeper than we're used to in you know, the past few decades, and you think, wow, uh, it's getting pretty scary. Then you look back, and you think, you know, we've actually come a long way in the right direction. Yeah, we've also had that same challenge in the past and survived. Yes. Do you have any personal insight or reflections that might give us a better handle on what's happening with the economy in our country? Um, great question. Um, you almost have to look at it from, from a couple of angles. If you look at it from a geopolitical standpoint, um, I want to say it's improved relative to where we were, say, two or three years ago. What, what comes to mind is the European debt crisis. I don't know that 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 I that, that would be correct. It certainly seems on the surface that we have backed off of the edge of the cliff, if you will. Um, my concern, though, is that the is the policy, the prescriptions, and the, the things that may have pulled us back. It, it, it appears, in my view, that it's really been more about central banks. And, and the various facilities that, that, that have been spawned by central banks and the IMF, et cetera, providing the liquidity to essentially tell people, listen, 
we won't let big systemic institutions fail. My view, Jay, is that that, that is a long-term terrible mistake. Um, I understand the short-term pain of a big bank or a, or a big auto, U.S. automobile company or, or something going out of business. I also understand the, the concept of creative destruction and how recessions and loss and failures are, are so key to to the process. Milton Friedman said we are a profit and loss. So we, we, we operate in a profit and loss world or system. Loss is every bit as important as profit. I would say these days the, the lessons of loss uh, are even more important. And my concern ultimately is that I, I don't know, and, and, I, and I stress this in my book in several places, I don't know that we have properly felt the consequences of our actions the past few years or decades that have, that have really come to a head. So, so anyway, on the surface, if you look at the financial markets, you look at bond yields and so forth, you say, okay, we're not, we're not in that, that, that you know, red alert danger zone that we were a couple of years ago. I don't know that what we've done doesn't ultimately put us back there again in the not-too-distant future, and maybe even worse, sooner or later, we're going to have to come to terms with the reality that even countries cannot spend beyond their means ad infinitum and rack up debt and not ultimately suffer the kinds of consequences that you and your family would suffer if you acted the same way. The fact that the country has a printing press, or the U.S. does anyway, delays that pain. And we do have a very dynamic, robust economy, ultimately. I should say dynamic, not robust at this point, which, which does make the dollar yet a very valuable commodity. You look at the, the entitlement structure that we've built. You look at that growing government. The bigger government grows, the more it extracts from the private sector, the less dynamic our economy will become. People spending other people's money on other people and their own projects and, and, and you know, forwarding their own political ambitions is not an efficient allocation of our resources. And so, I, again, I, I, short term, I, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with where we are. Long term, I think we're going to have to get a handle on things. Uh, if we don't, we will ultimately will come with a great deal more pain than we would have otherwise had to feel. Well, most logical people, I think, would agree with you. I've noted that you also are doing a blog on the Internet. Is this book an extension of that effort? Jay, it, it is. The, the essays in the book actually are blog posts or articles that I've written in the past. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of them on my blog site. And what I what I what I did is took just 31. It's a, it's designed to just pick it up, read it for a month. I'll do a series of these, and uh, ones that that got the people from the feed. I, I, I learned from the feedback. Um, they found them sometimes more entertaining than pertinent, but but these were pertinent and entertaining uh, based on the feedback that I got from from my subscribers. And um, so I thought I would just I would do this. This is the second book I've written. Actually, I wrote one in 2007, but that was more about the financial markets. And uh, so, so my idea is actually to do a series of these. I was actually starting on a bigger project, and it, it occurred to me one day. In fact, I walked into one of my staff's office, and she was uh, opening a small Amazon.com package, which I, I received those frequently. But this one she was opening, and when I walked in, she said she apologized for opening it, which, of course, I didn't care. And her reason for opening it, and she was actually reading it, was 
but it was so small and so inviting, and it was actually a pamphlet from an economist, written by an economist. And um, and then, uh, ironically, that afternoon I was doing a little work on my on my big opus, and it occurred to me nobody's going to read this thing. Um, <laughs> and I and I stopped, and I said I'm going to do it differently. And I thought about it for a while, and and I came up with this idea of. You know, the, the, in this case, a free market daily devotional. The next one may be on, you know, uh, free trade, or it, it'll, it'll be the same thing. But I, I could do these one a year for the next several years. Well, it's a great concept. Thirty-one days—that's something even I could uh, probably pay attention to and read. You can take in the whole thing in about forty-five, fifty minutes, and uh, so. And, and I mean, the feedback I got from readers—I've been getting from readers so far—pretty much is what we were after. So fabulous. And who does this yeah. book? Who does this book appeal to, and why do you think they are attracted to it? Well, um, I got a nice letter from a gentleman in, in Las Vegas recently who, who bought the book, and, and he, he basically said, I know very little about economics, but I understood everything you wrote, and it was so enlightening. He was very generous with his uh with his comments on the, uh, with his compliments on the book, and what it, what I was exciting for me is he said exactly what I was trying to accomplish. So here's a guy who would never pick up a book on economics, and something about this one, maybe his knowledge of me or what have you, inspired him to grab the book. I also got a, a nice review from a from a uh, econ professor at one of the major universities who I'd sent the book to. He and I have he's posted my blog a few times on his blog site. He's a very well known economist, and he. And, and it, it seemed to appeal to him. He said he loved the book, quote. And so perhaps maybe there's a pretty broad audience. Um, it's not a technical read by any stretch. There's no math. Um, it's really just, I mean, there's such simple concepts where I equate uh, fiscal policy to someone who's overweight and at the doctor and getting uh, a pain tooth scenario is one where the prescription is diet and exercise and the other one where the prescription is a pill. And kind of and, and kind of take those little stories and, and look at the obvious consequences of going in one direction or the other, and I do that time and time again in the book. So, so Jay, then it, uh, obviously, then it appeals to people who would—I'm repeating myself—but who would just not pick up a book like, you know, the general theory on employment, interest, and money, or some some very technical read. I, I've always complained that. The, the books that I like to read um, in general are written by academics for academics, so um, I find myself rereading chapters until I finally get it, realizing that most people who aren't in the business that I'm in are, are going to read a page and say, wow, I, I'm, I'm going to go spend my time more productively elsewhere. And those are the very folks who I think would benefit from from understandable, you know, real-life economic concepts. Well, you're providing a wonderful service to folks like me who don't have the time or the energy to get into the the weeds on some of this some of this content that can be thrown at you. Now, you also are fascinated by Wall Street. What are you finding out there that you think is of interest and and value today? Well, it's my business, so I can't help but be very um, very uh, keen, at least in my own mind, on what's going on today. We have yeah, we have uh, the indices reaching all-time highs. We've had a, a bit of a pullback the last couple of weeks. And I, I, I constantly um, 
talk to my readers through my blog and, of course, with clients in person about the fact that the moving parts are infinite, uh, uncountable in terms of what ultimately impacts the market and the economy. So I've learned over the years that there is no timing of these things. Um, the, the, the consensus is that this monetary policy, this quantitative easing, what the Fed is doing on a monthly basis, uh, printing money and buying bonds from banks, essentially keeping interest rates low, is what's been fueling the market. Now, I said a few minutes ago that you really have to look at it from two angles. The other angle is actually the fundamentals of the financial markets, particularly the equity markets, which would be the global stock markets. One of the, one of the interesting developments since the Great Recession of 2008, where countries, as, as I, I've alluded to, I think here, or certainly in the book, have been egregiously irresponsible, in my opinion. Now, not everybody agrees with me. Some Nobel Prize-winning economists would tell you I'm crazy. But what you and I know about finances in our daily lives, the big governments have broken all the rules. Companies, on the other hand, haven't. Companies, by and large, took that as a sign that they were bloated. They had too much going on. They had, they had excess capacity. They had too many employees, so they laid off a lot of people, hence the high unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. They closed factories. They paid off debt, as has the consumer to, to some degree. And any debt that's left, they refinanced at these crazy low interest rates. So when you look at a, at a company's balance sheet, by and large, you see a, a picture that we, I don't know that we've ever seen in terms of cash, um, margins, profit margins, uh, earnings growth. Now, the earnings growth, some have, have been you know, very skeptical of it because it's come from cost-cutting. I like it. I, I, I look at more efficiencies when the, ultimately the economy does gain a little traction. Um, you got to like the the global markets now there's I could speak I could keep going and I know we'd run out of time Jay about what's currently going on in emerging markets and how all this quantitative easing created a bubble over there that's kind of being the air is being let out of as we speak Mm -hmm. but in the long term scheme of things there's a lot of opportunity globally and I've been very excited about growth in these smaller developing nations in the years to come but I'm expecting a tremendous amount of volatility as as that growth develops now, in your book, what themes of your book do you think are relevant, uh, in addition to the fact of some very basic, to-the-point descriptives of what's happening in the economy, what themes do you think might be relevant? Well, um, I, I think what, well, what comes to mind, Jay, is, is uh, throughout the book, but certainly toward the end, the last two um, essays, the second to last in particular, I titled Political Chicken. And if you want to call that a theme, I think I paint very clearly what I think anybody, virtually anybody reading that essay would have to agree with, regardless of their political bias and how much they may love a given politician. And that is, it is impossible, quite frankly, to be completely honest and objective and get elected to national office. Um, it, it, virtually impossible. Maybe I'd, I'd like to think it's possible, but but how would you have the the access without without you know, promising things to people in terms of the access to the public and so on? So I, so I talk about uh, the in briefly in, in, with brevity the raising money process and the the favors that are promised as a result and the uh, and and so the theme if there is one is that. 
please, regardless of your affiliation, whether you're a conservative or a liberal or what have you, don't think for a minute that the side of the fence that you that you um, sympathize with is that much better, if at all, than the other side of the fence. They're all after the same thing. They're all after re-election. They're all after um, what you know their own personal ambitions, and they get to spend other people's money to to forward you know their their goals or to to achieve their goals, and and therefore you have rampant cronyism. Um, you know, like for example, you know, the fuel standards comes to mind. I didn't write about that, but but. Um, People who blend or the companies that blend fuel are, are mandated by government to help out corn farmers um, because they are now ramping up the required percentage of biofuels that go in there. That is clearly, and you can trace it back to the beginning, it's, it's an expensive proposition. It makes the cost of fuel go up. It takes a lot of fuel and pollution to create enough corn to make a gallon of ethanol. It makes no sense. But it does if you've been promised by the uh, by the, the corn farming industry, if you will, uh, a whole lot of support if you can get this done. So I could go on and on. So the theme of the book is be very, very skeptical with the political process. And hopefully if enough of us get it, we can begin pushing politicians in a better direction. They're always going to go the direction we push them, so we're going to have to take responsibility. I said in a blog post not long ago that deficit spending is terrible until some of it lands on your doorstep. Uh, it's easy to get covered, uh, captured by the by the uh, political process, and when we do, it, the, you know, the government grows faster and things just get worse. And get enticed into expecting something for nothing. Exactly. Tell me your blog post. Uh, where is it located and what's the name? It's betweenthelines.us. Betweenthelines.us. Yeah. The book title is Leaving Liberty, Essays on Politics and Free Market Thinking. The author, Martin Mazzora. Thank you, Martin, for visiting with us today. One chapter a day will get you through the book in 31 days, 96 pages total. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Martin, for visiting with us today. Great read, simple, to the point, and powerful in its content. I'm sure many of our listeners will want to obtain their own personal copy of Leaving Liberty. Where can they get a copy of this? Um, well, of course, the uh, the publisher would love to sell you one. That's iUniverse.com, but Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, any of the online booksellers, you can, you can grab it there. Thank you so much. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse Publications, this is J. Douglas Parker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back. 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. And today we'll be visiting with author Tim McGee to discuss his book, Worthy McGuire. Welcome, Tim. How's your day so far? Uh, good, good. Tim, how would you classify this book? Describe that for our listeners. What type of book is this? It's a mainstream fiction novel. The cover of your book gives this brief description. Retired businessman Worthy McGuire knows he cannot put it off any longer. Time's not on the side of this gruff World War II veteran, racing to fulfill a promise he made in the horrors of the D-Day invasion. As he plans a pilgrimage from Michigan to the site of both his best and worst day. This certainly is a mysterious introduction to your book. Tell us more. It is a, um, it's really a story about a World War II vet who um, takes his estranged family on a journey across the globe uh, in search of a French family that um, really saved his life during World War II. And he made a promise to return, and it's taken him all these years to fulfill this promise. And this is the stories about that journey and how he, he takes his estranged family with him and, and really has a chance, an unexpected chance, to uh, have some uh, closure and redemption with his family as he seeks out this French family that saved his life. Sounds like a fascinating backdrop. How did you come to write this book? What was your motivation? How did you get into the background and into the story to write it? Well, it actually, my father was a, um, a World War II vet. And so he was one of those, as Tom Brokaw coined it, greatest generation. And um, when he, um, he graduated high school, uh, he, joined, he joined the Army and right, right away. And it was, it was actually 1944. He never talked about the war much. And then his Many of that generation don't, but I was just always amazed that at such a young age, these these men and women took on such responsibility. And so um, after he passed away, several years after he passed away, I, actually my grandmother had a stack of letters that my dad wrote during the war um, while he was, um, he was actually a drill sergeant and just almost on a weekly basis he wrote to his parents kind of explaining what was going on where he was he was actually in texas and she gave me those letters just before she passed away and i always i always had them around and i was on a trip to france last year and went to normandy and just thought about that and kind of the story germinated in my mind at that point um always wanted to write something that would i honor my father and the greatest generation. So that was really kind of the, the germination of the story. That's a fabulous motivation. Did you pull any of the stories from those letters and include them in the book? Actually, I didn't, but the the story hinges around this soldier, this worthy McGuire, who it, it, during the, he's involved in D-Day evasion. He, he, he lands on Omaha Beach and ends up at a, um, a tiny apple farm and spends a harrowing night with a French family, helps uh, a very pregnant woman actually deliver her baby by candlelight. And the, uh, the story then kind of moves on to the next day where he uh, helps save, save the family and they save him, and he has to move on. He's, you know, he's a soldier. He's actually been wounded, and he's got to go get treatment. But he hates leaving this family. They just got caught up in the war just because of where they live. And he, he gives this baby his watch to play with, and he promises he'll return for it. And that's kind of the the crux of the story. And the actual watch is, I 
that was actually my dad had a watch <laughs> that he gave me that he got when he graduated from high school. So that was a that was a key prop in the story, and that, so I actually had that watch that my father gave to me, and so I used that same watch, same style, same brand uh, in the book, and so that was uh, kind of a key motivator as well. Are there any messages besides the restoration of your key character, Worthy McGuire, that are important to this novel? Well, yeah, it it, it it's a it's a you know it's a um, I guess a metaphorical journey from for a you know a guy who. He is when the store starts. You know, Worthy McGuire is eighty-nine, and he's at the end of a very long life. And so, you know, one of the messages is that that I'm trying to get across is not only is there, you know, there's opportunities for redemption and closure with even with the Strange family, and I, everybody has you know, everybody has a family has a story, right? Um, hmm. But um, it's also just a story about uh, it kind of. The you know the greatest generation these the older generation you know they're not ready to be put out to pasture they still are a kind of a vital component and can teach us a lot and that's really one of the what was one of the key themes of the story. This book that you've written, who do you think it would appeal to, and why? Well, I think the the uh, the target audience is mainly I would say kind of baby boomers and up. Uh, it it has. You know, but having said that, I've 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 got several people who have read who have read it, and you know they're kind of like the soccer moms. It really appeals to people who are dealing with you know dysfunctional family issues because this is a dysfunctional family. There's 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 no question that Worthy's family is um, you know has some some issues, and and so these these get played out in the in the story and kind of how they face down their fears. So it, anybody who has that kind of family dynamic would be it would appeal to it also has a historical angle because in the middle of the book there's a there's a flashback to um you know June 1944 uh and in Normandy so there's there's that aspect of it as well so it's mainstream fiction baby boomers and 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 up is really what I was lo- with targeting because your novel has a historical setting did you do a lot of research into the history of World War II <laughs> I did. I watched Private, Saving Private Ryan nineteen times. Now, I um, actually um, when we went, we went to uh, my wife is English, and so we go back to England quite a bit. And we decided to take a side trip to Normandy last summer. And so while there, uh, I did quite a bit of uh, research. While there, not only like we went to some museums and and uh, the U.S. Cemetery at Omaha Beach and things like that, but also just kind of getting the feel for the land because the last third of the book. Actually, all, it all takes place in Normandy. So, um, in addition to that, I've I've um, I did quite a bit of research in terms of not only reading, you know, firsthand accounts of the uh, of the landing at Omaha, um, but in addition, was able to actually track down the the, the Fighting Twenty Ninth was one of the uh, one of the main infantry infantry divisions that was involved with Omaha, and I was able to track down through research their actual war reports, action reports. And read a lot of those just so I could get a you know obviously this is a fiction story but I wanted to be as 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 accurate as possible in terms of you know how they landed what what the soldiers faced as they were fighting their way off the beach and up the bluffs. How long did it take to write this book and and in the process was there some self discovery that might have been included? It actually took from from start to finish to actually write the book it it took me about ten months 
So like, it's like giving birth to a baby. And in terms of self-discovery, I would say it was, it was, you know, obviously a little bit of a labor of love, but it was also, I think I learned that, you know, to sit there and say, I'm going to write a story and frame it out in your head, but then to actually sit down in front of a computer and start actually writing it, uh, it, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of just focus and perseverance. And I kind of, you know, that was a learning for me, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. How would you introduce this book to someone who doesn't know you or maybe even know the material that you are covering in the novel? How would you go about it? Well, again, I would say that it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a story. It's got a lot of subplots. So it's, it's a story about, you know, redemption, family, uh, redemption and closure. And, you know, I, I was, as I was thinking about it, and this is, it's, it's a little bit, if you were going to try and visualize what kind of a movie it would be like, it's like almost like on Golden Pond with a, uh, a dash of Saving Private Ryan. It's about, you know, family interactions and how, you know, petty jealousies and things like that can just fester and, and, and explode. In addition to, you know, this is an unexpected journey. This is a, you know, Worthy McGuire is an 89-year-old guy who, um, he's a successful businessman who just doesn't have a relationship with his family. And at that age, people would think you just kind of, you know, you haven't really dealt with it for years. You just kind of let it go. And, you know, so I'm telling people who are thinking about the book, it's, it's, it's a kind of a re revealing story that's really never too late to, to really kind of try and take a look at relationships and patch them up. You mentioned the word movie. If this was adapted into movie... What scene in this book would you say is the outstanding scene that they would introduce the movie as a, as a movie trailer? Hmm. I would say, without giving away the ending, which um, the the ending of the book is 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 pretty dramatic. It takes place on a on a D Day beach, and the the whole family is there. But that I don't want to give away the ending. Um, I would say in the middle of the book, when you know Worthy is a 22-year-old or 21-year-old soldier, and, you know, he's, he's fighting his way off, off the beach of, of Normandy, of Omaha, and uh, just the, the courage it takes for those soldiers to not just hide behind a barricade, but to stand up and, you know, run into the enemy fire, I would say would probably be a, a pretty telling scene. That sounds like a remarkable story. Uh, this book, what makes it different from others in the marketplace, do you think? Uh, it doesn't have a vampire. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, Perhaps you could incorporate that in the sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Worthy of the vampire. It actually, I think what makes it unique is that you have such a, um, the main character is an unusual character, you know, person in that he's, he's this, you know, nearly 90 year old kind of crusty gruff old guy who um, is, really kind of driving the story. And I, and again, I think, you know, as main, you know, as kind of heroes go, he is, I think un, he is unusual in that he is in the autumn of his life. And uh, he actually kind of in the book comes around to kind of re-engaging with his family after 30 years of really not doing anything with them. Fabulous. As far as completing the book and developing a storyline, were there other challenging aspects of putting this book together? I think it was 
the the main there's a lot of subplots. There's there's Worthy McGuire, who's the main character, and then there's his family, and he's he's got his, you know, Worthy comes back from the war and becomes a very successful businessman in the Detroit, Michigan area. He actually ends up owning um, car dealerships, and that's kind of what the family business is. And so, the challenge was. I had to do some research around kind of what the car business is. I grew up in Detroit, so that was not that difficult. But just developing all of those relationships that Worthy had or doesn't have, but the 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 the, the strings of his family, you know, his his son who he's been fighting with for like thirty five or forty years. They don't even know why they're fighting anymore. They just do it. And then his two grandkids who are they're they're estranged. Worthy barely knows them, but they're the ones he taps to take on the trip with him. He needs help. When Worthy decides he's going to go back to France to, to try and find this family that saved his life, he realizes he can't go alone. And he realizes, too, that he has to turn to his family, and he doesn't have a relationship with any of them, but he turns to the grandkids, their adult grandkids, and he turns to them for help. So developing those storylines about how the grandson David is in the family business and just miserable there and there's the granddaughter Shannon is also uh, she's clerking in a bookstore and and just you know under the oppressive pressure of her father and stepmother and so all developing all of those storylines and then kind of weaving them together was a and in, in a kind of coherent way where you finish the book and you go okay all that stuff made sense it, it's there wasn't any I don't think any leaps of faith in terms of the storyline. Well, congratulations. Is there anything we haven't covered that you feel is important for people to know about this book? Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's just a, I, th I think it's a good story. It, it's an interesting story, and it, it kind of reveals you have, each character has its complexities. I don't think that there's, there's a, there, there are characters that represent certain types of people, but nobody's is completely bad or completely, completely good. They're human beings. So if you're interested in a, a good story that, you know, kind of weaves in and out of the family intrigue that everybody deals with, and, but also, you know, this story takes you across the globe. It starts up in, uh, in a little village in Franklin, Michigan, and it, it takes you to where, you know, the uh, D-Day invasion took place. And, and, you know, along the way, they, they stop in England and, you know, go to the stormy coast of Wales to, you know, seek out letters that Worthy wrote during the war. So it's, it's, I think it's got a, just an interesting story. Sounds like a fabulous tale. Are you planning any other books in the near future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually I do. Um, working on one right now that is very different in terms of, it's a, it's a, it's a book actually about the, uh, um, the drug industry. <laughs> um, and that's, yeah, in, in in a previous life, I was I spent uh, twenty five years working in the in the drug industry, pharmaceutical industry, I should say. Um, Thank you for clearing that up. That story is is about a, a kind of a successful pharmaceutical executive who deals with again. There's there's his personal life. He deals with some very intense situations, and then in his professional life, he deals with some very uh, kind of ethical faced with some very, you know, ethical questions. And it's how he deals with the, the theme of the story in his personal life is how well do you know your best friend? That story, when it comes out, we'll look forward to talking to you about it in the future. For the moment, we've been visiting with author Tim McGee to discuss his book, Worthy McGuire, a novel with a backdrop of World War II and beyond, dealing with reconciliation and family healing.
Tim, thank you for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Jack. And how do we get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available actually through uh, through iUniverse, or it's available on um, Amazon as a uh, you know as a hardback or paperback, or um, as a, uh, a Kindle. And it should be available on Barnes and Noble as a on the Nook very soon. Thank you, Tim. We look forward to talking with you in the future, and thank you again for sharing this intriguing tale and the backdrop to this wonderful story. For Steve Jorgensen and iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. 